Kays von Bachelda founded The Hive, based in Utrecht, to enable open science by developing and verifying data in the life sciences. Kays studied computer science and bioinformatics, for which he did his research project on lipoprotein metabolism at TNO Quality of Life in the Netherlands and the John Mayer USDA Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University in Boston. Through his many years of experience in software and standards development in bioinformatics, Kays has a deep understanding of all aspects of open source development. Kays, it's uh, great to speak with you today. How are you doing? Thanks. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You're the founder of The Hive. What exactly does The Hive do? Can you uh, tell us that? Sure. So when we started out, the um, main problem that we wanted to address is how can you use open source software coming often from uh, an academic setting in a production environment, uh, whether that's in healthcare and hospitals or in pharma companies or in other biotech and, and research labs. And uh, so originally we started out supporting some open source software products such as Transmart and CBioPortal and Odyssey uh, to help organizations use that in their everyday work. The other thing which has become very popular lately is that we support organization in making their data fair and building out a data strategy so that data is not only generated in the course of a project, but you can actually reuse it later for other purposes. When you say making the data fair, and I've heard this expression, fairifying data, what exactly is making data fair practically? So fair stands for findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable data. And uh, the paper in uh, Scientific Data in 2016 explains the 15 foundational FAIR principles. These are aspects like, does your data set have a persistent identifier that uh, never changes that everyone can use worldwide to refer to that specific data set? But also things like, does it use a data standard that is well known in the industry or in the scientific community? so that other people um, can easily read in, read in your data sets without having to wrangle it for five hours in Python first before <laughs> you know, it fits with, with their pipelines, right? So, so it's a lot of these practical things. In Eden, the I, My Eden project, our goal is to standardize data, healthcare data across Europe. So we want to have more than 100 million European healthcare records available for scientific research and, and for, for studying health outcomes. So we make data fair in uh, Eden. Regarding your participation in Eden and some of the work you've been doing, there was a recent press release where you said the Hive will be working on tooling to make health records fair through mapping to OMOP from many different sources, including registries, hospital EMRs, primary care databases, and even national health initiatives. I'd like to unpack that sentence a bit. Now, what exactly is OMOP and how does that play a role in the Eden Project? Right, so the acronym stands for Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership, uh, but essentially you can think about OMOP as a data model that allows you to model any kind of medical history data. So if you have health data on a person in a, in a historic context, uh, you typically have the same things. You know, you have drug prescriptions, which you can standardize uh, using a vocabulary such as Rx norm. You will have uh, procedures. Uh, you will have uh, conditions and diagnosis, which you can standardize with uh, a vocabulary like SNOMED CT. You'll have lab measurements typically, like blood panels and the like, uh, which you can standardize with a vocabulary like LOINC. 
So it's really a standard model for representing healthcare data across any of those um, different sources that you just mentioned. So is it like a Rosetta Stone then? Would it be something that moves to translate back and forth between many languages? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, analogy. And there are several aspects to this. Like there is a sort of syntax aspect that if you take uh, one electronic healthcare record versus another one, they represent the data in a different structure, in the different tables, for instance. But there's also a semantic aspect to this. How do you represent a term like prostate cancer or any of the uh, variations of it? Or how do you model the progression of disease? And of course, there are uh, some standards that you can tap into for that. But what OMOP does is it, it's the OMOP model and then the OMOP standardized vocabularies providing a uniform way across the globe so that we, if, if I have, let's say, Danish drug codes, I can actually easily find the equivalent medicines in the US or in Korea or Japan. So it allows you to work across the various languages by having the standard basis that then links to all the data that's in the EHR. Yeah. A key aspect of that is, is what we call mappings. Because most healthcare systems use locally uh, some sort of terminology or multiple terminologies. Often you will have these standardized as well. SNOMED CT, for instance, is a really widely used standard or ICD, the International Classification of Diseases. But if you look closely, then there's often also a dialect. For instance, ICD-10 has ICD-O for cancer. It has ICD-10-SE for the Swedish variant. And so really harmonizing it in such a way that if you come from the perspective of analytics and you want to say study the effect of a of a drug you know take hydroxychloroquine as an example then you need to know that you're looking at the same drug regardless of the local terminology system that happened to be used there and that's where the OMOP mappings come in which is a growing library of mappings from a local terminology systems that are in use across the world to a number of a small number of standardized vocabularies that we use in Odyssey. And it's funny you mentioned uh, hydroxychloroquine because there was a very large meta-analysis that was done that actually ended up getting thrown out because of data quality. The, the data set that was used was found to be not reliable. And so what you're saying is OMAP can get around that and actually ensure data quality too. Yeah. True. And there's a number of ways, but I think that the first and maybe the most important one is that the philosophy of Odyssey is that we never use one data source for analysis. You use multiple data sources from different healthcare systems, from different countries, from different modalities, even, you know, primary care, secondary care. And only if we use all these different sources and we see the same pattern. That's, the, that's how we know that there's a real signal. So what happened with the Surgisphere and the Lancet, uh, where it's essentially just one database and you know, not even many authors had access to that. In an Odyssey network study, by definition, that won't happen. However, that's not the only way we look at data quality because the Odyssey community also developed recently the data quality dashboard And that actually runs a great number, um, about 3,000 or so standard tests against your data once it's standardized to OMOP so that you can figure out if your data is in line of what you expect from from health health data history or medical history. Uh, These are very 
basic things like you can be pregnant if your birth, birth sex is male, but also, you know, more subtle, like what is the incident of diabetes? And if that is greatly different for your data source, there may be an explanation for that, right? Maybe it's a diabetes registry, but if, uh, if it's very off from other sources, then you know, or you have a um, hint that there's perhaps something going on in your data pipeline or your data source. So you mentioned Odyssey, the Odyssey community. Odyssey is the community that sort of functions within the OMOP universe. Is that it? That's the community of people who are dedicated to using OMOP for data resources. Is that correct? Yes. The Odyssey community, so that stands for Observational Health Data Science and Informatics, is a global open source community of people from many walks of life. But you know what binds us together is that interest in analyzing healthcare data. Uh, for purposes like uh, looking at drug safety, drug efficacy, but also more nifty things like prediction. You know, given my medical history, what are chances of conditions that that I may have or uh, adverse effects that that I could uh, encounter if if I take a certain drug, for instance. So this uh, joint interest in analyzing data makes that the Odyssey community is very diverse. You have people from regulators, like from the FDA and the EMA. You have people from pharma companies, from IT companies uh, and, and, and data companies like the Hive, uh, from uh, university hospitals and uh, other um, medical centers, like even uh, GPs and uh, doctors are interested these days in, in the Odyssey community and what we can do with healthcare data. Odyssey ends up being a language to access the data similar to Linux? Would that be a fair comparison? Yeah, I think Linux is a good comparison because Linux is um, is also an open source uh, community in a way. It's, it's uh, Of course, in Linux, the code is very important. I think if you would compare it in Odyssey, we have uh, other aspects bef- beside the software code that we're interested in. For instance, there is a very big part of it dedicated to statistics and understanding how do you really do observational analytics in a good way. You know, in a clinical trial, uh, you can do randomization, but in observational research, by definition, you don't have any randomization in your data. So you have to look for subtle signals and use nifty techniques like negative controls, you know, things that you know that are not correlated. So if, if you find correlations there, then there's probably, that's a red flag that something's going on. But a lot of the ammunition to say that we should be doing more observational studies is that these are outcomes that have occurred in the real world without an inclusion or exclusion criteria, which will often be built to maximize the result of the drug to get the highest statistical impact. You know, I've never seen an obese 65-year-old in a cardiovascular trial. It's always a 48-year-old marathon 5K runner. Is using real-world data going to give us results that are more valid from an effectiveness standpoint then, as opposed to efficacy? We know it works often, but how well does it work? Is that what we're looking for increasingly? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's one of the main reasons why people are getting more and more interested in observational healthcare data analytics. It's the real world. It's what really happens. Um, people have com- comorbidities. People have drug regimens going on and uh, the drug or the treatment that you're studying may just come on top of that. That's what happens. And we we don't really get that from clinical trials. I mean, yes, it may prove almost, you could say, theoretical efficacy or efficacy in the study population, but not 
uh, in the real world, then you can only look at the effectiveness eventually in the real world when you look at data that, that comes from there. Eden is a federated model. And when we say it's a federated model, that means that the data lives in the institution and then the calculations are done locally and then the results are pooled, which gives a result. What are the benefits of this approach and what are the challenges of this approach? Uh, that's true. We use um, federated analytics. Eden is a kind of personal health train where we leave the data where it is, no matter whether it's in um, a hospital, could even be a pharmacy, you know, people's phones where they record their own uh, activity data. But we send a kind of train, an analysis around to all these sources to compute locally the results of, of some algorithm and then uh, bring that back together again. So what you get is you do get a result that is based on all the sources involved, but at no time you actually share patient level data outside the, what we call the data custodian, you know? So that's the site where the, really the responsible party is for, for handling uh, that data, which typically is a hospital or uh, GP uh, practice or something like that. Now that would be one of the benefits, but what about the challenge of say something like acute lymphoblastic leukemia, where the entire global population is only 700 people? It's going to be very hard to run those statistics. How does a federated model accomplish that sort of analysis when you're dealing with small or targeted populations, which increasingly many of the new novel drugs are? So the OMOP standardization, what you gain is the ability to compare to other sources, uh, but you also lose um, potentially something. That's a question that I often get. You know, if it, it sounds great, this standard for uh, representing data or Rosetta Stone, whatever you call it, but don't you lose any information in the process? And uh, to some extent that that can be true. I have to point out that when you map your data to OMOP, the original codes are also still represented in the OMOP map data set. So you still have them, you, st you can still query for them. But I think where the model doesn't work so well is when you have very specific uh, data elements that you're interested in uh, or data elements that aren't even routinely captured, right? So um, if you want to standardize the way in which you ask uh, patient reported outcomes, for instance, that's not always, uh, th there are not always even standards for that today. Sure. So then you go more into the direction of, okay, let's do a cohort study or a large large scale trial where perhaps you can use a standard like OMOP to locate the people with the condition, if the condition is, is uh, well-known and, and present in terminology systems. But then you have to do a follow-up survey where you collect this data specifically. And so um, OMOP isn't uh, meant to, to solve everything. It has a specific scope, and that scope is analyzing routinely collected uh, medical data. You're dealing with systems within the same network, but often through very different ownership or provenance. For example, you know, EMRs, electronic medical records, but then you'll also have primary care databases, and maybe then you'll have national health databases, plus probably some healthcare registries. What's the challenge in practical application for linking all of these things together? How does that actually work? You have to have a, a certain perspective that allows you to compare it into 
the perspective that we take in OMOP is that we are looking at the medical history of a person. So one very crucial aspect in the model is, um, for instance, what we call the observation period, which really says that um, whether I'm looking at uh, claims records from uh, health insurance or uh, a hospital, there is a certain time where uh, people are supposed to have data. For claims, there could be uh, the moment where the policy is effectuated and until the moment that people exit. Uh, and uh, similarly for, for a GP, it may be the moment that I sort of enter the practice versus when I exit, for, for instance, because I move to another city. So if you're looking at a period, you're saying that you're able to then link these various data sources by the period, and that should be... Well, it's, it's the perspective of uh, within this period, uh, people experience certain health outcomes in terms of diagnosis, or they took certain drugs, or they underwent certain procedures, or they had certain measurements. Uh, those are kind of objective facts, you know, that that's the, the result, that's what really happened. Uh, information that we don't always have are, for instance, the care plan. You know, what was the intention? And that's, that's very valuable too. So we're looking at ways of standardizing that uh, for analytics. But here is where it becomes harder to compare the setting because it's also very uh, linked with the healthcare system. In the UK, for instance, uh, you typically will have detailed GP records because everything goes to the GP. Whereas in other health systems, like in the US, there's really no telling where health data may be. It could be private labs, it could be with Medicare. Uh, so that's a much more sort of fragmented system where there's potentially data in multiple ways, but uh, in multiple places. But OMO brings it together through this standard model of there's always certain health data facts that, that occur. One of the big differences, as you just mentioned, the data in the U.S. will be held, and often it's a commercial reason why the data is held. You know, ICD codes are often used to trigger billing. In Europe, the data will be held by a particular researcher as part of their research mandate at a hospital. And, and this is sometimes one of their sources of political power. How do you get around the politics of data access in Europe? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It, we, we do have a complex uh, healthcare data landscape in, in Europe where Eden is operating. So we have a number of, of ways in which we want to improve the situation. Because if you're trying to reuse healthcare data from Europe, chances are you can't get it at all. Or if you can get it, you're likely um, a high-profile researcher with connections. Uh, you know, it, it's not a standard procedure for, for hospitals or GPs to make their data available for research, right? It's just, it may be theoretically in the mandate, but let's say when you are a CIO of a hospital, your primary goal is to make sure that the hospital runs and that patients are treated and then they don't die from you know failure of systems or incompatibility of systems and being able to reuse the data that's uh, generated routinely for for research or for outcomes analysis is kind of a nice nice to have so what we're doing in eden to try to address this problem uh, we have two important um, measures or uh, ways for that. One is that we have grants. So we have a, um, uh, a fund of uh, 17 million euros. 
which we hand out as incentives to organizations, any kind of organization that has held data in Europe, if they want to map it to OMP, they can apply to the grant and they get a maximum of 100K euro to uh, help them do that. The other thing is that we train small and medium enterprises. So consultancy companies typically that want to help support uh, mapping to OMOP and we train them in understanding of the model. And the idea is that they also become sort of local experts because if you have a Spanish GP registry, very likely, you know, there's, there's Spanish terms in there and Spanish terminology systems. So it makes sense to have a, a local company that, that knows these systems specialized in how do we map that properly to OMOP. And so that's the ecosystem, the open source, uh, open science ecosystem that we want to build out in, in Europe through Eden. What would be the benefit from a system standpoint compared to some of the commercially available products like Cerner or Epic? I mean, from your standpoint, obviously, it's publicly owned, it's open source, so it's, it's more flexible in that sense. But are there other benefits aside from just closed off system? Yeah, so, so the examples of Epic and Cerner are um, EHR systems, right? So, so hospitals will typically procure these to operationally manage all the clinical data uh, and to track care plans, to track billing, all these things. OMOP is more of an analysis-focused model. So it would take data from Epic or from Cerner or from you know whatever management data management system you're using and standardize that in such a way that you can compare the analytics. Of course, there are some commercial companies that that also do this. There are some big names where the companies will have connections with a lot of data sources and they can kind of provide this as a service. But I think Odyssey is the really first open source community that does this at scale. Uh, you know, there's some others that we also involved in like I2P to Transmart. But the, the big, big advantage is that by using a standard that potentially applies to any sort of medical data record system, you're not locking in to one vendor or one software provider you really have something that could be reused across the world and that gives you, you know, doesn't lock you into to, uh, to one provider. So that, I think that's a really big advantage. If we look at what's just happened with COVID-19 and the many challenges in development and infrastructure that we've seen, Europe's been accused, or at least it's been seen that Europe's been falling behind in biotech innovation and technology innovation for quite a few years. Europe's ability to scale up a COVID vaccine quickly was called into question. Would would the Hive and Eden be able to help going forward? Yeah. yeah so, so let's take that example of uh, COVID-19 and responding fast. In March uh, this year, uh, we had planned a, an Odyssey Eden meeting, uh, which was supposed to happen physically in uh, Rotterdam or in Oxford, sorry. And we it couldn't go through because of COVID-19 and uh, you know, lockdown measures. So we repurposed it instead to a study-a-thon about COVID-19. And we had a number of sources across the world, uh, for instance, um, Columbia University in New York, where there was at that point a really high surge in cases. Uh, we had data from Spain, from UK, etc. And we were able to produce really in a matter of weeks 
a number of high-profile uh, studies, including on the, the safety profile of hydroxychloroquine, uh, which is now published in Lancet Rheumatology. And so that paper is definitely not going to be retracted <laughs> because... Uh, High data quality, of course. <laughs> yeah, and it's fully based on open source as well, right? So, so you can't see the original patient data, but you know it's there's multiple independent sources of it. And you can see the full analysis pipeline. You can see all the assumptions and hypotheses that we built into that. And you can even run it on your own data set if you have one. So I think that is definitely where the future is. And if you had told people in the field five years ago that it would be possible to produce a regulatory grade study on the safety of a drug in a matter of weeks, they probably would have laughed at you. But that's essentially what Odyssey has shown. Uh, how, how long did it actually take from you know setting it up in the meeting to actually delivering the initial results? What, what sort of timeline were we talking? Well, that virtual meeting uh, was four days in a row. So, you know, it, afterwards we were all a little bit uh, dropped dead, <laughs> but uh, essentially most of the work was, was already done by that time. So you start out with, you know, looking at the data sources you have, what do you have for COVID? Um, here, what, what we have is a positive test results. Uh, oh, but we actually have, uh, we have it registered as um, uh, a code for, for a blood test. And he, we have, we have it registered as uh, condition of uh, know, COVID-19. Uh, and yet yet someone else has uh, SARS-CoV-2 in there. So, so that's the basic where you look at what do we have and is it standardized enough and what can we use? But then you go into, okay, what should the design be? Because we had multiple, we, we looked at the efficacy and safety and also patient level prediction. How long of a history do we require? Uh, you know, we say we want to have prevalent users of the hydroxychloroquine drug, for instance. What does that mean? Do they have to be taking it for for 90 days or 120 days or a year? Yeah. Uh, and do you have uh, data that often in your hospital system? So you start to dive into all these details very, very rapidly. And thanks to the fact that the Odyssey analytics are already out there, you know, we, we have the basic framework in R as open source code. It's more of an exercise than you know, filling in all the details, running it a couple times at the sources to check if it is uh, formatted correctly, and then you do the real analysis, which you know, it, for a large data source, it can run for a couple hours, but eventually you get it back and uh, you have your outcomes measures, and then most of the time is really spent on the literature analysis, you know, placing this in where does it fit in our current knowledge of the disease. Plus then um, kind of interpreting and writing out all the results of the analysis. Peer review still runs very, very slowly, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the thing with open science because, you know, you, you publish that thing on GitHub, the analysis, and a couple of days later, we publish the results. But then, I mean, it's a good thing that we have free prints, but this, this process starts with shopping for the, the journal that will take your article months and months and months. It's such a waste, waste of time. Months and months and months and rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. And, yeah, I know. It's, it's unbelievable. You mentioned Eden and you were going to have a live event at Oxford and you had to call it off because of COVID. Kind of in the same situation, it was going to be the first annual event of Eden. And that's now been turned into a virtual road show. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going to be happening on the virtual roadshow case? Yeah, so um, I'm very excited for the for the roadshow and and the webinars we have lined up. I think we have a number of 
high-profile speakers there, um, people that really know the healthcare systems intricately and that, that um, you know, also have the vision of how can we take this moment in time where I think the coronavirus pandemic has demonstrated beyond doubt that we do need timely access to integrated quality healthcare data. It's not just um, a hobby uh, of some scientists or drug developers. It is of relevance to society at large. Yeah. And what's interesting about the roadshow as well, we were going to do it in Madrid. It was going to be in April, right at the peak of the crisis. But what's intriguing is that we do have a lot of Spanish health officials who are going to be involved in the webinars and in in the discussion. And uh, we do hope that people register. We're going to be looking at it from the Spanish perspective about fighting coronavirus and how a tool like Eden could be leveraged with Odyssey and OMOP. If you would like to join, just go to Better Science, Better Health. Dot com. That's the Vital Transformation Communication website. Click on the Eden link and uh, you can register and that'd, that'd be great. So again, it's bettersciencebetterhealth.com. Click on the Eden link and you'll end up in the roadshow and you can register for the webinars. Case, one final question for you. If you could, what one recommendation would you like to implement? One regulatory change or policy change or technological change that we need to make that you would like to see happen you know, in the next month or two? Uh, what I would say is prioritize Um, the ability to reuse routinely collected data for research and outcome analysis. Make that a real priority. You know, if a hospital uh, or GP uh, or anyone that's that's in charge of, of healthcare data could do that, and I think that should be supported, of course, by the government and by grants, um, but we have that infrastructure now partly in place, I think really making this an operational priority I understand it's not going to save uh, patient lives today. And that's always, you know, I think that's that's uh, the bane of our society is long-term versus short-term thinking. And, you know, the stock market doesn't care about results in five years. Sure. But the point is that we have this opportunity to really improve our understanding of disease through uh, open data and through data standards. And hopefully the governments, also the national governments, which are instrumental in this, because a healthcare system, we don't have a European healthcare system, where we have a collection of national healthcare systems that work together. Um, they can they can drive this and, and they can really mandate the standardization in uh, the medical space. Kays, it's, uh, it's really been a pleasure speaking to you and really thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dwayne. It was a pleasure.